Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy 2, um, 4, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4. Finishing 1 Timothy 4 this morning with verses 12 through 16. We have spoken in any number of contexts now uh, about the qualifications of ministers, about the duty of ministers, about the direction that, that, that Paul is exhorting Timothy to go as a minister, as Timothy is there in the church of Ephesus, having remained there in order that he might set things in order, in order that he might exhort the church unto what they are called to be doing, that they are to be the pillar and the ground of truth, that they are to guard themselves against error, both from within and from without, against the errors of false doctrine, Doctrine against the errors of the world creeping into the church. And the world creeping into the church was 1 Timothy 4. Uh, error within the church, the doctrine of the church was 1 Timothy 1. We saw the qualifications for those ministers. And as we looked at the qualifications of those ministers, one of the things that we, uh, we highlighted was that as it related to the qualifications, not, not necessarily the duties, obviously that's a calling, that's a vocation, but as it related to the qualifications of ministers, the qualifications are not unique to them, with, the, with the, the exception of apt to teach, which is something that the Lord gifts. All of those elements of temperance, of maturity, of stability, they're supposed to be in all of us, right? Not just preachers. But the pastors, the elders, they are those who the church has identified and thus ordained as examples, those who have led well, those who have aligned properly, those who have sought to the Lord with their whole heart. And so the church identifies them as those unto whom the Lord's particular hand is upon to be an example to the rest of the body. We're going to see many of these types of ideas come up again in 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 through 16. These verses are spoken particularly to ministers, and we're going to see where that, the particular calling upon Timothy comes in. But especially in that first verse and that second verse, verses 12 and 13, what we're going to find is that what we see to the minister, an exhortation to Timothy as a minister, can again be broadened out to the church as a whole and can really help us as we're seeking to orient ourselves as leaders, not just leaders in the church, but leaders in our communities, leaders in our families. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith. Paul is exhorting Timothy here. Notice we have uh, uh, thy youth. Thou, be thou an example. In our King James Bibles, we have a tremendous advantage as a translation and a translation philosophy by the King James. They used thee and thou and thy, and then they used you and your and ye. And whenever we see thee, thou, and thy in our King James Bibles, what we know is that the underlying translation in the Greek is a second person singular pronoun. It's speaking to one person. And when we see a you, a your, or a ye in our King James Bibles, the underlying Greek pronoun is second person plural. So by doing this, the King James translators found a way within the scope of the English language to reflect 
the flexibility of the Greek as it relates to a singular person being spoken to or a multiple of people being spoken to. And this is a wonderful advantage to us when we are reading our Bibles. I don't have to go to a Greek concordance or dig into the Greek in order to know the nitty-gritty of what Paul is saying or who he is writing to here. He is not speaking to the church or all the elders of the church. He is speaking to Timothy. Be thou an example. Let no man despise thy youth. And we see that here clearly. Now, we don't exactly know how old Timothy was when Paul exhorts him, let no man despise thy youth. Most believe, most commentators, most scholars believe that he was not yet 40 years old, that he was probably somewhere in his early to mid-30s at the time. And this persuasion comes from a number of study assumptions, many of which we discussed minimally at the beginning of our time together in 1 Timothy during our book sermon, uh, and which I'll bubble up to the surface. Timothy was the son of a young uh, or of, of a Jewish mother and uh, a believing mother, a believing grandmother, we, we find from 2 Timothy. Uh, so he had a Jewish mother and he had a Greek father. And he lived in the area around Derby and Lystra in Galatia. Paul's first time there was during his first journey in, and we see that recorded in the book of Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 14. He went with Barnabas, if you recall, and he visited Lystra, Derby, Iconium, any number of other places as well along that path. And after, and that was around 48, 49 AD, that they would take that journey, that they would start to, to proclaim the gospel, plant churches in these areas. And then after that journey, Paul and Barnabas returned to their sending church, as it were, and that sending church was found in Antioch. It would be some two years after that that Paul and Barnabas decide that they want to go see how those churches are doing. So two years later, they begin to get together to start another trip. Only this time there was a great disagreement, a tremendous contention between Paul and Barnabas. And it was over whether or not they should bring with them Mark, if you recall. And the contention was so sharp between them that they end up going their separate ways. And Barnabas takes Mark and they go. And Paul takes a man named Silas. And Paul and Silas now take that second journey. And it is on that second journey, when they're back in that area of Lystra and Derby, that they meet Timothy. And Timothy at this time uh, was already thriving in his spiritual life. But we still see him in the text fairly strongly associated with his parents. And this gives us an inclination to an interpretation that Timothy was still a very young man, probably late teens, early 20s at the time. And that's really where this idea comes from, that he was that young, is that he's still strongly associated with his parents. We don't see him associated with a wife or with a family. We see him associated with his parents. Now, we take from that that he's probably very young. Now, it would be another 10 to 15 years, most likely, before we believe Paul wrote the epistle of 1 Timothy. That would be probably somewhere in 63 to 66 AD that we see Paul having written to Timothy this epistle of 1 Timothy. Thus, we assume if Paul took him in his late teens or early 20s, we add 10 to 15 years to that, we're probably in the early to mid-30s, 35 to 40 years old. And this would still be relatively young as it would relate to 
the elders of the church, right? They are called elders for a reason. Uh, it's not just that they were uh, men who led, but they were men who were generally speaking older. They uh, led by example. They had affirmed an example of the faith. They were more rooted and grounded, as we talked about when we talked through uh, our teaching on the qualifications of the ministers. And so Timothy probably was, relatively speaking, a young minister. And this can create uh, a unique layer uh, that I can speak to personally. Uh, When you are ministering to people whose children are older than you, it can create a layer where a complication with authority, right? And this is the idea that Paul is reflecting here. Paul speaks to Timothy and exhorts him not to allow any man to, if I may use the word, belittle his youth. That he is not, that the, the idea here is not that Timothy should develop a small man complex, right? That he's ready to fight anyone who looks at him crosswise. Are you, are you saying I'm too young? You know, it's not that, right? Not to be ready to fight anyone who would disesteem his youth, but rather that Timothy should not allow it to get to him. And, and in two different ways here. First, uh, get into his head. And make him think as though he should not be a minister or that he does not have the right to be a minister because of his age. And second, he should not allow anyone in the church to use his age as an excuse to ignore the authority that he has in the church. That he does have authority. That that authority has been given to him. And that his age should not factor into how others treat him. As If, if they would treat an older man with, with rightful authority because of his position, why not the younger man who has the same position, right? So there's two elements of that, that that are likely going on here. And again, as I say this, it is important to understand what this word despise means in our King James Bibles. Despise is a pretty strong word in our language, right? We use the word despise, similar to the way we use the word hate, for things that we have a, a strong emotional negative emotional reaction to. Uh, the, the word has a connotation uh, of, of something that is, is odious or, or, or that is contemptible to us. But that's not how the Bible uses the word. Just like with the word hate, which in the Bible, in our King James Bibles, does not mean to have a strong emotional reaction against or to even dislike. It means to place lower in value or place lower in favor. The word despise simply means to, to disesteem, to, to take something which ought to perhaps have a measure of esteem or that others esteem and to lower the esteem in your eyes. So we do this all the time, right? There's a person who um, has a particular um, um, uh, type of music that they like or, or there's a, a person who has a particular color that they like and you say, nope, not for me, right? You are disesteeming that which they esteem, You are placing lower in value than they would place in value. And this is that idea here. I go back to that example uh, when a person has a young pastor and their children are about the same age as the pastor or their children are even older than the pastor. There can be a tendency. It's not that they dislike their pastor or they have anything against their pastor, but there can be a tendency to say, hmm, why is he telling me what to do, he's like one of my children. He's the same age as my children. He's younger than my children. He's just a little guy. That's sort of an idea. Jesus came across this, not due to his youth, but due to his upbringing, right? 
he goes back to Nazareth and they say, is this not Joseph the carpenter's son? And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. They disesteemed him, not because they did not recognize his authority, but because they were so familiar with him. And Paul is exhorting Timothy here, don't allow that idea to overshadow your ministry, that you're so young, that because you're young, you can't or don't have authority. You don't have to dislike someone to disesteem them. Disesteeming them is just thinking against or thinking little or belittling them. And as we mentioned already, Timothy is charged not to attack them who might disesteem him, not to resist or to fight back. A pastor should never look at someone who might be disesteeming him and say, you are challenging my authority. That's not the idea. The idea is this. Timothy, be an example. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't be an example, that you can't lead by example. That's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what First Peter taught us. The elders are supposed to lead, not by compulsion, but willingly, as an example to the flock. If Timothy is an example to the flock, if he has aligned with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 2, if he is striving for that mark, if he is apt to teach, if he fulfills all of the qualifications, then don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Don't let anyone tell you that you shouldn't be in that ministry. Show them what a believer ought to be and validate by your life that you are where you should be. Validate through your life that you're qualified. Validate through your actions that your age doesn't matter. They can say whatever they want. They can say you're too young. They can say you don't have what it takes. But the only that they can't argue with results. They can't argue with results. The world may laugh at a five foot three guy named Muggsy Bogues who, Bogues, who plays in the NBA. Did, not doesn't anymore. Five foot three, you can't play in the NBA. The world may laugh at that. But they could not argue with the results. The guy could play the game. A person may not be comfortable when a young man bears out the fruit of a call to ministry. And he, he is placed into that position because of whatever perspectives, perceptions, experiences they've had. But if a man bears out the fruit of spiritual maturity, if a man bears out the fruit of a calling, then we need not disesteem him. If a young person bears out the fruit of spiritual maturity, we need not disesteem them. The wise King Solomon said this to, to young people in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Young men are exhorted to remember their creator. Young men are exhorted to live for the Lord in those days of youth. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. If there is a young man who, against 
the passions of his nature and the tremendous impulses of his flesh in those years of his, of his youth, who has assimilated the word of God with faith and with patience, and who bears the marks of the Lord's working on his life, as Samuel did in his youth, in 1 Samuel. Should then his age be the only factor for which he has held back from a particular direction? Now, that being said, naturally, there are things which only time can teach, right? Naturally, there's cognitive development which takes time in, in young people. Naturally, there are the warnings that the one who is in the ministry not be a novice, right? Not be a young believer, not be one who is not skillful in understanding the Word of God. But let us be careful that we're not artificially hindering young people, not necessarily just unto pastoral ministry, but in spiritual ministry. Let us be careful that we're not hindering our young people in their ability to spiritually serve, spiritually minister, simply because of their age or other material consideration. So Timothy is called to be that example Paul says, don't let anyone belittle your youth. Show them. Be an example. Show them what it is to be a, a follower of Christ and prove that you are where you're supposed to be. Prove your spiritual qualifications so that no man can speak against you on practical terms. And by the way, the church is called to do the same thing to the world. The church is called to live before the world in obedience and impurity, that whereas they speak evil against us as evildoers, they may by our godly conversation in Christ Jesus be ashamed. We are not called to fight back against the world when the world belittles us as believers. We are not called to fight back against the world and to hate the world back when the world hates the testimony of Jesus Christ within us. We are called to let that testimony shine all the brighter And so then whatever they might do, whatever harm they might bring, as we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ in Syria and in Egypt and in Iran and in Iraq who are suffering, who are dying for the faith. And the call is, let your godly example testify of truth. Be an example. Show the truth all the more brightly as the world around you might resist, as the church might despise your youth. So he says, be an example in word, the things that he says with his mouth. Then he says in conversation. We know that word conversation in our King James Bibles. When we talk about a conversation today, if I say I had a conversation with someone, we're we're thinking about what we're saying, right? But that's not what the word conversation means in our King James Bibles. The word conversation speaks generally of our deportment, of how we live, of how we carry ourselves, uh, of of the essence of our communication. Uh, We know that communication is is only minimally verbal, right? There's a great deal of nonverbal communication that exists, whether that is my posture, whether that is uh, any element of my body language. When I was going through police training back uh, in high school and and college, um, and we were interviewing someone, there were a lot of things that that we were called, that we were trained to do as we would interview someone. Uh, We were trained to take our gun side and turn it away from the person that we're talking to as we're talking in police training. Uh, One of the things that we were always trained to do is watch their hands. If you see a guy start to do this, start to ball up that fist, you step back, right? It doesn't matter what he's saying with his mouth. 
You watch his body language, right? Communication, conversation is not just about what I say with my mouth. We can say a lot of things with our mouths that we don't mean in our hearts, that we don't enact in ourselves. Be an example, Paul said to Timothy, in word and in conversation, in conduct, in the manner in which you deport yourself. Live out the truths of the word of God. Be an example in charity, he says, possibly with an eye toward those who were disesteeming him. Be an example in spirit, in sensitivity to the spirit and being led by the spirit. Be an example in faith, exercising your faith, stepping out in faith, showing what it is to have faith in God, whether that's material, whether that's spiritual. And in purity, live a pure life. Be exemplary. Let the church look to you and say, I want to be pure like the example of my pastor. And Paul says, if he shows himself an example, that word there, example, tupas, a model, a pattern, spoke of an image, like a stamped image on a coin. If he is that, then there will be no one who can, in in, in fairness, deny his right to minister. And of course, and more importantly than that, the believers will be edified as the minister is called to do. Verse 13, he says, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Once again here, we see Paul speak toward his desire and expectation that he would come back shortly. Uh, We see from history that this really did not seem to happen. We do do not see from history uh, Paul coming back shortly. We do know that he he does end up uh, there at some point, and yet um, not necessarily quickly. He says, however, while I'm away, give attendance to these things. Pay attention. Focus on these things. This is, this is what the church, this is what the assembly is to do. This is why you come together. Come together to give heed upon reading, knowing the scriptures and content, exhortation, obeying the scriptures, and doctrine. Applying the scriptures to life and godliness. So read it, apply it, obey it. This is why we come together. This is what we are here to do. We're here to learn more about Christ. We're here to draw closer to him. We're here to be exhorted one of another to obey. We're here to get spiritually recharged. You go out into the world and you're interacting with 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 the world, and it's dark. And you're walking one way, and the world is walking another. And that is by design. Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. But God wants us to come together and exhort one another. We were talking in Sunday school about the tendency to drift. What is it that keeps us from drifting? Well, it's when I come back and I remember that I'm not the only one fighting this battle. And I remember that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are holding the line, and I can too. And you know what? I may come to church saying, I really need someone to remind me to hold the line. And someone else may come to church saying, I really need someone to remind me to hold the line. And we meet together and we remind each other to hold the line. And then we move forward together in purity and in faith and in spirit and in, and in charity. And that's what we're here to do. Verse 14, neglect not the gift 
that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the spirit, uh, excuse me, with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Beyond just being a good example of the believer, this is where we get significantly more into Timothy's calling as a minister. Beyond the natural exemplification of Christian values within the minister, something which all of us ought to be doing, we all ought to be an example of the believer in word and in conduct in charity and in faith and in purity. But beyond just that, Timothy is also called not to neglect the gift that is in him, that was given by prophecy, Paul says, by the laying on uh, of the hands of the presbytery. Now, it's important to understand that this word presbytery is the word elders here. It's the same word that we see throughout the Bible that means elders. And this is actually where the idea of the Presbyterian church comes from because they have an elder system. And so they called themselves the Presbyterian church for that reason. Uh, the Episcopalian church is from the word episkopos, which means bishop because they have a bishopric system, right? That's why they gave themselves those names. So Timothy had the elders lay their hands upon him and with the, this prophetic word, he was given, as it were, a gift. Now, Paul is referencing a time when the elders did this, and it's important to understand this concept. It's important to understand what this is and what this isn't. And again, there's going to be a lot of disagreement in interpretation as to various Christian groups as to what is being said here. But let me walk you through where our mindset comes from as to where we come to the conclusion we come to as to what this means. We have talked several times throughout the book of 1 Timothy already about what prophecy is in the scriptures. And we have mentioned specifically that in the majority of the cases that we see prophecy uh, uh, happening in the scriptures, the prophet is not actually telling the future. The prophet is telling forth the word of God. So we regard that there were two primary functions of the prophet. There was a foretelling ministry whereby he would tell the future. And then there was what we would call a forthtelling ministry whereby he would tell the people the word of God for that day. And prophets were called of God to be primarily forthtellers. They were to come and say, thus saith the Lord. And they were to give the word of God to the people to exhort them unto a particular set of actions. And then the prophet would use signs, wonders, and foretelling as a means by which to validate his ministry. So the signs and wonders that he did were not signs and wonders just for the sake of signs and wonders. They were there to prove something. They were there to prove his authority. The foretelling ministry was there to prove his authority. And we know this from Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22, God says this, he says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all the things that, uh, all that I shall command him. Excuse me. And that's foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But a prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When the prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So in other words, the prophet will say some things. And when he says these things, he's going to be compelling you under a certain set of actions, a certain way of thinking. And then he is going to say, in order to validate my words that they're from the Lord, I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen in the future. 
And when it comes to pass, you'll know that I was right. And God says, here's how you know. If they say the thing and they say it in the name of any other God but the Lord, Jehovah, then you know it's wrong. He needs to die. If he says a thing in the name of the word of the Lord and he gives with it a sign, a wonder, or a, a, a prophetic foretelling and it does not come to pass, then he's a liar. Ignore him. He was lying to you. That's why there's so much prophecy, foretelling prophecy in our Bibles. It's all come to pass. It bears with it the authority of God's method of proving himself. So we look at how this plays out throughout the Old Testament. We find the focus of the prophecy's ministry was to call the people to a fundamental decision in that day. We've been studying through Jeremiah now for a year and a half. And what have we seen? Jeremiah said, this is what's going to happen to you unless you repent. So change today so that that doesn't have to happen to you. Right? That's what Jonah did. 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. They repented. The Lord changed his heart. That's what the prophets did. They were commissioned by God to come unto a people, to call them unto a action. And they used the foretelling ministry, the signs and the wonders to validate that action. So then, as we see this in verse 14, Paul saying, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. As we carry this idea, we would likely understand here then that the point of this prophecy was not that the elders gave Timothy something that was going to happen to him in the future, per se, as much as it was a charge that he would act, deport himself a certain way, and in doing so, this would be the end result of that. Do this and you will be blessed. Do this and he will not be, right? Not only is this consistent with how we see prophecy described in the scriptures, but Paul even shared with us the general content of this exhortation, this prophecy in 1 Timothy 1. Recall back in 1 Timothy 1.18. Paul said, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest fight a good warfare. The content of these prophecies was an exhortation by which Timothy would be able to fight a good warfare. The content of these prophecies were exhortations by which Timothy would be called unto faithfulness. The object of these prophecies was how to fight the battle. Right? Now there's one more question we need to address in order to be thorough. And the question is, what is this gift? There are two primary theories as to what the gift is that was given by prophecy or according to prophecy. One, people say, well, the Holy Spirit is a gift. Timothy was given the Holy Spirit, and that is the means by which he was enabled. The second is the gift of the ministry itself or the vocation of the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe it's the latter, not the former. Throughout the book of Acts, the book being a time of transition within the church where God was showing those signs and wonders in order to validate, validate what he was doing in the world, that he was transitioning from working through the Jewish people exclusively to working through this body of Jews and Gentiles together called the church. God was doing a great number of things. He was performing signs and wonders. And we see a select number of circumstances where the Holy Spirit came upon people separate from their profession of belief. 
This we understand to be a very uncommon thing. Uh, we do not see it beyond the scope of the book of Acts. We do not see it in the teachings of the, of the epistles. We do not see any implication that the Spirit of God is a second blessing that comes upon people after belief, but rather that the Spirit of God indwells a person at the moment of belief. And of course, there can be a filling, not as the Lord would fill a cup, but as the Lord would fill a sail, right? A propulsion unto the ministry, a filling unto a purpose. And so we see in the book of Acts a few times where there were those who would lay their hands on someone and upon laying their hands and praying for them, they would be filled with a visible, obvious manifestation of the Holy Spirit upon them. Again, this is not the norm in the Bible. This is more the exception than the rule. In Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, we find this. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And this comes directly to the fact that God knew that there was going to be a great contention with Samaritans and Gentiles entering into the church. And there was going to be a big problem with this because the Jews have always been God's people. And all of these prophecies of the Lord coming upon them in the last days, found in Joel and such, are in Jewish prophetic books. And so if people were just going to start receiving the Holy Spirit of God, the Jews would say, no, not valid. So what did God do? God told Peter, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to let you be my tool through which to validate the kingdom of heaven and the working that's being done. So Peter, of course, is there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls upon them in the upper room. And then Philip goes up to Samaria and people start believing. But they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. So Peter goes up there. And as Peter goes up there to see the work that's being done, verse 16 says, For as yet he, that would be the Spirit, had fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they'd been baptized They'd accepted with gladness. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So Peter validates what's going on. He lays his hands on them. They receive the Holy Ghost. Now no Jew can say, this is a fluke. Peter was there. Peter initiated this. Peter validated this. He was also there when the first Gentile received the Holy Ghost. Cornelius. Peter was fasting and praying on the rooftop. Cornelius' servant comes and gets him. Peter sees the vision of the sheets and the, the unclean animals. God says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. Peter goes to Cornelius, preaches the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls on him. Peter now has been eyewitness to the Spirit of God falling upon Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile. Nobody, and this is, becomes very important in the, in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, when Paul gets up and he says, no, we don't have to be, people don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And there's an argument there, and Peter gets up and says, I've seen it. I've seen the uncircumcised have the Holy Ghost fall upon them. And that kind of ends, that settles it. Peter settles it. And so we see what God was doing there. We don't see a record after that of the Holy Ghost falling upon people after salvation. We see it at the moment of salvation. With one more exception. We see it with the, we, we see it with the Samaritans. We see it with the Gentiles, and then we see it here in Acts 19, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, 
Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. So we see again another instance that the apostles laid their hands on men to receive the Holy Spirit of God. And particularly in this passage, we find the Holy Spirit falling upon those who, though they were entirely aligned with the vision of the Scriptures, they had not heard of Christ. They had only heard of John. They'd been baptized into John's baptism, a genuine reflection of their faith in the coming Messiah, but they had not realized that Messiah had come. And so they are baptized in the name of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of God falls upon them. Notice that in this instance, it was the ones who received the Spirit who prophesied and who spoke in tongues. In 1 Timothy 4, the Bible doesn't say that he received the gift and he prophesied. The Bible says that he received the gift by prophecy. And he received the gift in alignment with prophecy. So the idea of the Holy Spirit himself being the gift that Paul is referencing as it relates to Timothy here seems less than likely for any number of those reasons. And this conclusion is supported by the other time Paul references Timothy's gift, which is in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, Paul says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of, his afflic- of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Skipping to verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and, in lo- and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. So Paul states here that his hands were laid upon Timothy. That would have been when the presbytery laid their hands upon him at the time of his gifting, letting us know that Paul was, yeah, he was one of those elders. Paul associated this gift with the testimony of Jesus Christ, with the afflictions of the gospel, and with sound words in faith and love. That's his association to the gift, right? His association to the gift is not that it was the Holy Spirit himself, but rather that this gift is the, 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 the form of sound words, the faith and the love that had been compelled upon him, the, the reminders of the afflictions of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, t- Timothy, it is now given unto you to bear the cross of Christ as a minister of the gospel to follow in the afflictions of Christ, to follow in the testimony of Christ. Paul knew this well. He speaks of shipwreck. He speaks of stoning. He speaks of uh, receiving stripes that would be being whipped. He was deeply persecuted for the faith. And it seems as though that's the gift that Paul is talking about. The gift is that as a minister of Jesus Christ, he 
like the Levites in the Old Testament, were yielding an earthly inheritance because the Lord would be his inheritance. He was yielding the better parts on this earth, which are not taken away from the church. The right to make money, the right to uh, uh, enjoy the things of this life in purity, those are not removed from the church. But the minister of the gospel has a different calling on him, has a different priority, is called to set those things aside, even those things which might be lawful, might be okay, but they're not expedient. They're not right for him. They're not right for his calling in order that he might pursue the gospel. And notice in verse 14, Paul says that this good gift that was given to him was committed unto him by the Holy Ghost. Not that the Holy Ghost was the gift, but that the Holy Ghost gave, or the, Holy Ghost gave the gift. And to this end, it seems most reasonable to see that the ministry itself was this gift. And this gift was entrusted to him when he was ordained into the ministry under the agreement of the elders by prophecy as they exhorted him to war a good warfare. And it is this gift that Timothy must not neglect as Paul exhorts him in 2 Timothy chapter 1. To not, be, to, to not have a spirit of fear. And that word fear does not mean like you're claustrophobic or arachnophobic. You're afraid of things. It's timidity. God has not given us a spirit of timidity is really what that, that, that word means here. Be bold for the gospel, Timothy. Stand up for the faith, Timothy. Hold the line of truth, Timothy. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear. Stir up the gift that is in you, that it was given unto you by the laying, hand, uh, by the laying on of the hands. Stir up the gift of boldness. Stir up a remembrance of what you're here to do. Don't get timid. Don't back down. Don't lose sight. Verses 15 and 16. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing so thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul exhorts Timothy to be consumed by the Christian life, to be consumed by this example, by this exemplary life, to be consumed with the ministry, even unto the affliction that it might ask of, of one who would stand against the current of the day and of the culture, to meditate upon these things, to give him wholly to them. And I love the way this is written, that idea to give yourself wholly to them. It Literally there in the Greek, it reads, meditate on these things and be in them. Meditate on them and be in them. Live in them. Make it, make it who you are. Enter into that mindset wholly. Engulf yourself in these things. Be in it. Think on it. Let your life be defined by it. And that for this reason that all might see continual profit, continual progress from the man of God. The man of God, just like any Christian, should not be standing still. He ought to be growing. I hope you've seen growth in me over the years. Not just growth in my capacity to preach or to communicate, but I hope you've seen growth in me. See, because I'm growing too. 
your pastor is not a man who has arrived. By grace, your pastor is a man who is leading the way. But he has not arrived. Thank God I don't have to have arrived in order to be your pastor. Thank God I can be a flawed man. Thank God I can make mistakes. Now, what matters is how I handle them, just like anyone. Is their repentance, is their humility. But we're all growing. So Paul says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. He says, give yourself wholly to these things that your profiting may appear to all, that everyone can see you profit, you progress, you advance. And then he says, take care unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Personal holiness, right doctrine, sound doctrine. And in doing so, Paul says, you'll both save yourself and those unto whom you minister naturally. Salvation here is not talking about being born again. The word salvation in our Bibles actually uh, in a, it is a minority of times in the New Testament where the word salvation means to be born again. The concept of salvation, just like it does in English, is a word that can mean any number of things. It can mean being saved from the lake of fire and eternal death by grace through faith. It can also mean being saved from illness or sin or sin's consequences or wrong decisions or danger. All of those things. We've even seen it already in the book, in, in, in this epistle, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible says that the mother or the woman in the church would be saved through childbearing. Doesn't mean that she has to bear children to be born again by any means, Right? But it means that within the church, as her children grow up and serve and love the Lord, there is an element of redemption there. There is an element of validation there. There is an, ele- an element of, uh, of, of justifying all of the effort, all of the virtue. As Paul would say of Timothy, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth, right? That's that idea of salvation there. And so Timothy... As he follows, as he progresses, as he continues in sound doctrine, not only, of course, would there be those that receive the gospel of Jesus Christ through his ministry, but more so, what will they be saved from? Well, if he assimilates 1 Timothy 1 into his life, they'll be saved from the the false doctrine of legalism, as is presented. If he assimilates 1 Timothy 4 into his life, then they'll be saved from the false doctrine um, the, the seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. If he assimilates 1 Timothy 2 into his life, they'll be saved from a church of apathy through prayer and through godly feminine virtue. If he assimilates more of chapter 4 into his life, then they will be saved as they see and they can follow their pastor into an advancement and a progression in his faith. And all of those are a measure of salvation. And so we come to the end of 1 Timothy 4 with these exhortations unto the man, Timothy. Four applications that I'd like to draw from this this morning for our church. There's a lot of applications I could draw to me because I'm a minister and that's what First Timothy is about. But for our church, number one, we need to be sure that we're judging spiritually. Be careful that you do not equate physical youth to spiritual incapacity. Really, the very essence of how our church functions is a desire to encourage this within our church. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we have young people who have no idea what they're doing and zeal without knowledge come up behind the pulpit and preach, right? That's not what we're doing here. 
But what it does mean is that we are not a church for adults. We are a church for believers. And if there are believers among us, they ought to either be serving or learning how to serve. From the youngest age of profession, when that profession bears fruit and there is confidence within the body that there is a measure of of spiritual progression happening and advancement happening, it needs to be deliberate. We need to watch, we need to be careful that we don't get into a routine where we say, okay, Johnny, I know you're a believer, but when you get older, you can serve God. Well, why? Why not now? Why can't Johnny lead his neighbor friends to Christ? Why can't Johnny have a place in the church? Why can't Johnny be at least being learning under, underneath someone being a part of a ministry in a learning capacity. There are any number of reasons why we would be tempted to impose someone's youth or even someone's perceived intellect upon our assessment of their spiritual understanding or their capacity to minister. But we need to be careful that as we're judging people, we are judging them by spiritual standards, not by physical There are some who are saved for a relatively short amount of time and yet they grow in their faith very quickly, they progress quickly, and they grow into spiritual maturity in a rather short amount of time. There are some who have been saved for years and are stagnant. They've never even gotten beyond the milk and they're content there. And they've not continued to progress. They've gotten comfortable. Like in the days of the judges, when Judah conquered just enough. And then they said, well, there's still some in the valley. Jerusalem's not conquered. But you know what? We've got a place to live, so we're just going to be comfortable. We're not going to actually cleanse the land because we've got enough. There are many Christians who, have, who are living life that way. You've got enough. You've got enough to keep you right. You've got enough to, to, to uh, give your family some measure of stability, but you're not progressing. So we need to be careful that we're not judging a person because of how long they've been saved or because of how good they sound, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, how well they can play the part. Judge spiritual judgments. There are those among us who have not been saved for very long, but the Lord has laid burdens upon your heart. And as you grow, those burdens are going to continue to grow. You ought to be identifying that. You ought to be pursuing. And our church ought to be helping you become equipped to fulfill those purposes. Maybe you aren't ready yet. God forbid that we should throw, throw a believer to the jackals and say, oh, you're a believer and you have zeal, so go for it. Uh, no. But we all ought to be seeking to serve and we ought not invalidate someone because of age ought not invalidate someone because of perceived intellect. Don't say, well, yeah, I, I, I have a thought or I have a desire or I have a burden, but I could never do that. Come see me. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you can be equipped properly to do the work of the Lord. Let's work on that. Let's grow together. Let's grow you in your faith. Young people, you want to serve? Great. You want to learn how to share the gospel? Let's, let's teach you how to share the gospel. Maybe there's certain things you can't do yet. That's okay. Let's get you trained so that when you're able, you can, you're, when you're able, you're ready. 
The church is not an assembly of adults. It's an assembly of believers. Let's not wait until we're adults to start thinking about serving. Don't wait until you're old or older children, young people, to invest. Serve today. Serve your creator in the days of your youth. Point number two, be an example. The best way to combat error is to exemplify truth. We see this all throughout the New Testament. You want to prove truth to be true? Live it. Prove it. I can reason with someone all day. I can go through all of the scientific reasons. I can go through all the metaphysical reasons. I can go back to Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and I can, I can go through the whole method of, 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 of a dialectic to prove my points. But nothing, nothing proves truth like the power of a changed life. Paul exhorted Timothy, in contrast to those who would despise his youth, to be an example of the believers. The best way to prove truth is to live truth. In word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. This is how we convince men. Now, it doesn't mean we don't use words. The Bible says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Right? So we need to be proclaiming the word of God. But that proclamation is going to be very hollow if our lives don't back it up. And so now we have three-fourths of our young people leaving the church today. And whether or not those churches have a measure of truth in word, what they are lacking is truth indeed. The children read the Bible and they hear about a God that provides. And then they go home and they see parents who fret about money all day. They hear about a God who can change lives. And then they go home and they see parents who are angry, who gossip, who bicker, they talk about they, they read in the Bible about unity, and then what they actually see in the church is division and contention and cliques. Backbiting, undermining of authority. And there's no truth. There's no validation because they don't see it. And so they walk away and they say, that God is not real when what they don't realize is it's just that the people aren't real. We don't meet together for the sake of religion. Religion is a good thing. It's a framework that guards our relationship with Christ and keeps us in the way. But religion is only as good as the relationship that undergirds it. To say what is right but to fail to live out this truth is little more than empty religion without any life to empower it. It is never we who convince men of truth. It's the Spirit of God who convinces men of truth. And God can certainly use flawed vessels to do it. Thank God for that. But how much more powerful is the life of one who, without hypocrisy, without contradiction, lives out a strong, consistent Christian character? The word of God is not just to him a bunch of words. It's not just to him a formulaic way of living. It is life. He is not just talking about it. He's in it. Be in it. Meditate upon these things and give thyself wholly to them. 
Practicing what we preach, there's power there. So James says in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. I look in the glass in the morning and there's broccoli in my teeth and my hair is every which way. Not my hair, but you know what I mean. And hair is every which way. And you've got a smudge on your face from a grease smudge from working on the car yesterday. And you look and you say, huh, I look like a mess. And then you step away from that mirror and you move on with your day and you don't do anything about it. That's the hearer, but not the doer. He looks into the perfect law of liberty. He sees who he is in light of who God is. He recognizes his, his, his uh, failings and incapacities. But instead of going to the Lord in repentance, saying, Lord, clean me up, he moves on. And he says, hmm, I wonder how I can excuse away that smudge. Maybe I'll just start a new hairstyle and say this is, this is intentional. This is what it means to be a Christian. Maybe I'll just say that broccoli and teeth is, is kind of, it just proves that I eat healthy, right? And so we explain away what God says needs to be cleansed. And we become ineffective. And truth is invalidated in the lives of those who look to us to validate it. Moving on. For he beholdeth himself and goeth this way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Verse 25. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's the word of God, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, that man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, that's that religion thing, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain, empty. He's got the framework, but he doesn't have the power. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Charity and purity. Charity and purity. That's the framework. That is what undergirds life in Christ. A hearer of the word, a preacher of the word, but not a doer of the word, that's called hypocrisy. That man will receive nothing of the Lord and should expect nothing of the Lord. That man has deceived his own heart and he is living in in emptiness. His religion is vain. But a pure and an undefiled religion lives it. Charity and purity. We need to be, as Christians, you need to be an example, not a reference. Be an example, not a reference. So how are you doing today? Are you exemplifying truth? The best way to convince the naysayer to show that something is real is to show that it's real. How you doing? Knowledge is easier than faith. Hearing is a lot easier than doing. But the knower is not blessed in his deed. The hearer is not blessed in his deeds. It's the doer that is blessed. Number three, be faithful. Ministry in any capacity is a gift and a responsibility. We all have a measure of ministry. Perhaps it's to our families, siblings, children, parents. Perhaps it's to our coworkers. Perhaps it's to our, our employees, maybe to our employer. Perhaps it's to our neighbors. Certainly it's to our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Paul calls for Timothy not to neglect the gift that was given to him, not to allow the charge upon him to war a good warfare, to fall short through his timidity, to fall short through a lack of faithfulness, to be so afraid of what others might think of him, to be so afraid of how others might react to him that he fails to enact what is his responsibility in ministry. Don't fall short. Be faithful. Be faithful. It's not always fun. It's not always easy to live out the elements of the ministry, to reach out to those that really may not want to hear what you have to say, to put yourself at a disadvantage in order to help someone else, to take of your time and to take of your resources when they may just spit back in your face, but they won't hear without a preacher. And that faithfulness will be rewarded. So be faithful. Be faithful. Final point. Keep progressing. The Christian life doesn't stand still. Paul exhorted Timothy to meditate and to give himself wholly to his gift, to this responsibility, to his relationship with Christ. The end goal is that Timothy would continue to grow, would continue to progress, and that that progression would be seen by all. We look at our employment, our job, our life choices, and we, we always evaluate. You look back at the last year and you say, uh-huh, you know, I've, 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 I've made money this year. I, my, my investments have progressed. I've changed a few things. Uh, maybe you've decluttered this year. You've done some New Year's resolutions. You were going to lose some weight. You were going to declutter. Uh, and, and, and if you say, I'm going to lose weight, what do you do? You buy a scale. You measure your progress. And if you're not progressing, something has to change. Your diet has to change. Your amount of activity has to change. Something has to change if you're not progressing, but you will never know if you don't measure it. And if you don't measure it, you're just wasting your time. If I have a resolution to, to declutter, well, I'm going to have to measure that by some metric. We do this all the time in our, in our secular lives, in our, in our material lives. Are you setting spiritual goals? Do you have a spiritual metric by which you are measuring progress? Are you looking for that progress? Have you set steps in your life to see that progress brought about? What about you and your wife? What about your marriage? Husband, say, you know what? In a year, I want my wife and I to be aligned in these areas. Now let's start a strategy. What books of the Bible can we study together to align? When can we be praying together to align? How can we bring about this alignment? I want my children to be here in their spiritual lives. My, uh, one child struggles with anger. The other child struggles with vanity. The other child struggles with selfishness. Okay, let's get a strategy to get from point A to point B. What can I do this year to help my child struggling with anger learn and grow? How can I measure their progress? Are you progressing in your Christian life? Do you have a plan to progress? Are you trying to progress? Can you gauge your progression? Or are you just floating through this life? Just floating through your Christian life? Just kind of, well, I'll, I'm, I've got today and I'll do tomorrow and we'll see what happens. Will your, profit, will your profiting be seen to all if you're just floating? The Christian life doesn't stand still. I heard a minister once talk about the Christian life, you're, you're, on, you're on a hill, he says, and you're either running up that hill. If you stop running, you're going to start sliding. 
You're either going forward or you're going backward. What's the last year been like for you? We're coming toward the end here, last week in October. What has this year been for you? Has it been a year of progression? Has it been a year of regression in your Christian life? If you've been regressing, why? What's happened? Did you lose focus like Peter? Did you lose focus of your Christian life? Did you get caught up in something? Maybe it was money. Maybe it was emotions. Maybe it was some other priority and you just kind of lost sight of your walk with the Lord? Have you been regressing, kind of falling back into old habits, old ways, living in a manner that you, you know you shouldn't be? Progress. Repent. Get it right. Cleanse that heart. Go to the Lord. Ask Him to clean up that face. Look into the perfect law of liberty. Continue therein. Progress. Everything that Paul exhorts Timothy under here, uh, unto here takes effort. The Christian life does not come by osmosis or by proxy. The Christian life is a deliberate thing. Are you just existing or are you living for Christ today? Four points. Judge spiritually. Be an example. Be faithful. Keep progressing. Are you growing? Are you faithful? Are you living out that example? Are you being consistent? Are you validating truth in your life? Are you living by a spiritual judgment? God help our church to reflect the kind of exhortations and examples that Paul exhorted Timothy unto this morning. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net. 